Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 20, Annoying Anarchy. Right, before we start everyone, please forgive me, but I've got a little advert to do, and the advert is for me. You see, I've gone and written a book. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, but it's done, so I might as well try and flog it. Now, you may be asking yourselves, what interesting part of Italian history does the book cover? What does it have to do with Italian history? Well, absolutely nothing. The book is about the famous Chelsea Hotel in Manhattan, New York, and the stories of some of the illustrious guests that have stayed there, Bob Dylan, Janis Joplin, Leonard Cohen, Andy Worrell, Sid Vicious, and so on. Anyway, if you've been thinking about supporting A History of Italy, and like a good read, or well, let's not go too far, if you like a read, then why not try downloading or ordering a copy of The K-Rock Chelsea Hotel by Mirko Colombo and Mike Karadi. You can find it on our website, www.ahistoryofitaly.com on the homepage or on the support page or you can search for it on Amazon. Uh, be careful, you do get the English version The K-Rock Chelsea Hotel with the article. So thank you very much for that. Now, down to business. Last time, we said goodbye to the Carolingian dynasty in Italy with the deposition of Charles the Fat in 888. What was left in their wake was a big, messy mess. Italy was a collection of mini-states, counties, duchies, principalities, marches and a papal state. On a macro level, we can make the following division, but keep in mind that everything was further divided and assigned to varying levels of vassals. We had the Kingdom of Italy, which included Piedmont, Lombardy, the land parts of Veneto up to Venice, but not what is today the city of Venice in the lagoon, then Liguria, parts of Tuscany, parts of Abruzzo, and the Marche. Then we had the Papal States, which had varying borders, but mostly Rome and the surrounding areas. We then had the Duchy of Spoleto, which was under the influence of the Kingdom of Italy, but it was autonomous enough to mention especially considering what is to come in this episode. Further down, we have the principalities of Benevento and Salerno, the Duchy of Naples, and then Calabria and Puglia, which were under Byzantine control, and at the very bottom, an independent caliphate of Sicily. As we saw in the last episode, the new nobility had set up their own estates under the feudal system, so the urban areas were left almost exclusively under the responsibility of the bishops. As long as there had been an emperor, the nobles, at least those who were not in open revolt against the imperial authority, pretended to have some sort of loyalty towards the emperor as a unifying presence. Now, they didn't even have to pretend anymore. They could kick back and worry about the thing they were most interested in, 
looking out for number one, every man for himself. That didn't mean that everyone was content to sit happily in their own territory and mind their own business. Of course, everyone was quite happy to contemplate the idea of having a king again, which could unify Italy. But then everyone wanted to be that king. Meanwhile, they were happy to have land, people to work that land, and when possible, grab a bit more land from one's neighbours. There was intrigue. Corruption, betrayal, and constant fighting. What about the Pope? Wouldn't the representative of Christ on earth be working for unity and peace among all Christian people? Well, no. If there is a force in the history of the Italian peninsula that has definitely not been working for a unity of Italy, then that was the Papal States. Even at the time of actual unity and beyond, they were not happy about the unity. In all of the chaos, two men in particular rose to prominence. But before we proceed, this is not the story of them bringing order to a land of chaos; just men bringing more chaos to a land of chaos. The men in question were Berengarius, Berengario, Marquis of Friuli, and Guido, Guy of Spoleto. Berengario was descended from Louis the Pious. The only son to survive his father Charlemagne, the old emperor, Berengarius was related to him through his mother. Guido was also related to the Carolingians, albeit a bit more distantly. As soon as Charles the Fat was deposed, Guido ran up to France to claim the imperial crown, but he came back empty-handed. Berengarius, meanwhile, headed to Pavia and had himself crowned king of Italy. By the counts of Lombardy. Now, quick note here: by this point, Lombardy is just the northern part of Italy,、uh, more and more corresponding to the actual region of modern-day Lombardy, but not quite yet. Guido was not at all happy about this, so he marched up north, defeated Berengarius, and convened an assembly of bishops in Pavia, which, in 889, crowned him king. Berengarius, at this point, realized he needed some friends. One was easily found: the Pope Formosus. He wasn't too keen on Guido, who, being the Duke of Spoleto, was a bit of an annoying neighbor, who had also tried to steal parts of the papal lands. The other, more useful friend that Berengarius went looking for was Arnulf, King of Carinthia, which is modern-day southern Austria. And in 893, he crossed the Alps and entered the Po Valley, leaving panic, death, and destruction in his wake. Unfortunately for him, King Arnulf suffered from rheumatism. He was 43 at the time. Now, I live in the southernmost part of the Po Valley, just at the feet of the Apennines, and I must say it's a great place to live for many reasons. But one of them is definitely not the weather. In the muggy summer, it feels like you're walking, or better, wading through a light suspended broth with mosquitoes bearing down on you like the helicopters from Apocalypse Now. And in the winter, the humidity actually gets inside your bone marrow, and when you go to bed, it's like lying on a damp towel. In short, it's not a good place for someone who suffers from rheumatism. Arnold of Carinthia didn't take long at all 
to turn around and head back over the Alps, leaving bits of his army behind him as they died from disease. He hadn't completely solved Berengarius's problem with Guido of Spoleto, but it sort of solved itself because around the same time Guido died of a hemorrhage. His son Lamberto went over to Rome to get the Pope to crown him king of Italy, which at that time, and let me remind you, was only northern Italy. Now, I can hear you saying, "Hold on, wasn't Pope Formosus in cahoots with Berengarius, enemy of the Spoleto guys, Guido and his son Lamberto?" By the way, I do love the word cahoots, and I wonder why it has taken me twenty episodes to use it, and I'm sure I'll use it a bit more. Anyway, to answer the question about Formosus, well, yes, he had been in cahoots with Berengarius against the Spoletans. However, there are two considerations to be made. First, back then, and forgive the satire, also in Italian politics now, it didn't really matter what you said or did ten minutes before. Then, and we'll have a better look at this in the next episode. Spoleto, over the period of Frankish domination, had acquired growing influence in the city of Rome, and Formosus was having a lot of trouble dealing with the Spoleto faction of the city. So he sort of felt pushed into it. The pressure he was feeling prompted him to once again seek the help of Arnulf of Carinthia, who, despite the bad experience he had had the first time around, accepted to come back down again. He took an army down to Rome and lay siege to Lamberto, who in turn was keeping Pope Formosus prisoner in Castel Sant'Angelo. If you've had the pleasure of visiting Rome, it's the big castle on the bridge as you cross over from Rome to the Vatican. Sitting outside of the walls of the Eternal City, King Arnulf demanded that the Romans surrender. The ferocity of the Roman taunting took him completely by surprise. I can imagine the Romans blowing their noses in his general direction and telling him that his mother was a hamster and his father smelt of elderberries. They may even have gone so far as to threaten to wave their private parts at his auntie. In the end, the siege was won by a rabbit. Yes, a rabbit. You see, it seems that the king spotted a hare rushing off towards the walls of the city, drew his sword. And galloped off after it. Now I wonder, what on earth was he thinking? Was he that bored to get all excited about a rabbit? Was he really hungry? Also, how on earth do you catch a rabbit from a galloping horse with a sword? And even if you can, isn't that a bit of an overkill? I mean, a rabbit with a sword, surely. In any case, seeing the king charging off on his horse, his army took it as a sign that it was time to charge the walls, or else they were also wanted to get the rabbit. Whatever the truth may be, the walls were stormed with ropes and ladders. City gates were smashed with axes, and the heaviest gate, that of Saint Pancras, was breached with a battering ram. Quite a lot of ado to get hold of a rabbit. In the end. Arnulf entered in triumph upon his shining white horse. It seems that he wasn't as happy as one would have expected after successfully laying siege to the city of emperors. The reason, apparently, was that he was upset about not catching the hare. 
he went straight over to Castel Sant'Angelo to release the Pope. Then they went off to St. Peter's, where Formosus crowned Arnulf Emperor. The next item on the to-do list was to go over to Spoleto, where Lamberto had run off to. On his way there, however, Arnulf fell ill, and since winter was near, he decided to head off back to Corinthia. I thought winter would be much better in Italy than in Austria, but he must have had a nice cosy castle to go back to. With him gone, Lamberto was off the hook. He made peace with Berengarius, and then went and died after smashing his head after falling from his horse as he was hunting a wild boar. He lay unconscious for a few days, and when he finally died, many attributed it to a cup of poison. Berengarius got all excited, ran off to Pavia, convened a diet of bishops and counts, and was crowned king again. Unfortunately, he didn't have time to enjoy his reign. Now that the Frankish presence in the country had crumbled, Italy was once again an interesting place for a bit of raiding, pillaging, and general mayhem. In the year 899, a couple thousand Hungarian, or we should say Magyar mercenaries, spilled over the Alps into Italy. Berengarius took an army to meet them on the Brenta River. He had recruited some Tuscans as well. They were the first to flee at the sight of the invaders. The rest of the army, including King Berengarius, soon followed. It wasn't the best for a king to be seen running away like a scared rabbit, so he was deposed and he scampered off to seek refuge in Bavaria. In his place, another descendant of Charlemagne was called, Louis, the king of Provence and emperor. So he came trotting down happily in 901. However, Berengarius was not finished yet. He sent spies down to Verona, where Louis had set up his headquarters, and started to collude with the bishop of that city. When the time was ripe, which was in 905, Berengarius entered Italy with a small band of men and made his way to Verona. With the help of some priests, they were able to catch Louis by surprise. He sought refuge in a church, but he was found blinded and sent back to Provence. That was the reason why he is remembered by the rather unfortunate yet accurately descriptive name of Louis the Blind. He did not die, however, and lived on until 928. Meanwhile, Berengarius was once again back in the saddle. But he had to wait before he could have a crown to stick on his head. You see, although the nobles in central Italy were willing to recognize him, those in the area of Lombardy were not. And what did they do? Well, they asked for foreign intervention, of course. This time, the man for the job was Rudolf, the king of the Burgundians. Down he came and was met by Berengarius at Fiorenzuola near Picenza. The Burgundians won the day, and Berengarius himself was able to save his skin by hiding under a shield on top of a pile of bodies, and then making his way to Verona. Rudolf didn't get the chance to enjoy his conquest either, since he had to go home and sort some things out in Burgundy. He left a lieutenant in his place in Italy, and Berengarius lost no time in sending an army against the lieutenant in Pavia. But this time he made his biggest mistake. He didn't just send any army, 
but around 5,000 Magyar mercenaries, who not only overcame the defences of the city, but also razed it to the ground, brutally murdering every man, woman and child. The Italians did not forget that it had been Berengarius to send this plague upon the city and ordained a plot to have him assassinated. On an April morning in the year 924, while he was praying in a church in Verona, some assassins approached him and stabbed him in the back. Berengarius's dealings in Italy were finally at an end. Some see in him a hero, a pioneer of Italian unity, while others, yet another of the many violent, bigoted tyrants that ruled one of the divided parts of the country. Now that Berengarius was finally out of the picture, perhaps Rudolf of Burgundy could take it easy and be king, and we can close the episode with a nice, neat stopping point. Wrong. Rudolf was in love with a woman called Ermengarde, which seems to be the only name women had back then. She was his lover. She was apparently a woman of great beauty, capable of intrigue and seduction, and compared by her contemporaries to such women as Helen of Troy and Cleopatra. She apparently had a thing for her half-brother, Hugo of Provence, and wanted to knock Rudolf off the throne and put Hugo in his place. When Rudolf found out about his love's plotting, he was so consumed by jealousy that he went mad, and once again the ruler of the kingdom of Italy walked away. At this point, Ermengarde got what she wanted, and Hugo became king of Italy. He was crowned in 926 by a rather relieved Pope John X. Why relieved, I hear you ask? Well, Giovanni John was having some serious trouble back in Rome with the opposing faction, and in particular a certain young lady called Marozia. But we'll see about her and the interesting situation in Rome next time. For the moment... Let's leave Hugo of Provence with the crown of the Kingdom of Italy, which was far from being the Kingdom of all of Italy, but you get that by now. That was quite a ride, so let me give you, and mostly myself, a quick summary. The first to become king after the deposition of Charles the Fat was Berengarius Marquis of Friuli. Guido of Spoleto was not happy and defeated Berengarius, becoming king instead. Guido ended up dying and his son, Lamberto, became king. Lamberto died in a hunting accident and Berengarius was king for the second time, but he was deposed after a humiliating loss to the Hungarians. In his place, the nobles called Louis of Provence, who was then blinded by Berengarius. Rudolf of Burgundy was called down. He defeated Berengarius and left a lieutenant. Berengarius attacked the lieutenant using Hungarians who brutally sacked the city and viciously killed the inhabitants. Berengarius was blamed and he was killed in 924. Rudolf, who had been made king, meanwhile went mad. Hugo, king of Provence, was called in his place. In any case, don't worry too much. You can get away with remembering that, after the Carolingians, there was a period of anarchy in which Berengarius, Marquis of Friuli, did a lot of scheming and faffing around. 
with a series of kings ruling northern Italy and the southern parts off doing their own thing. Next time, as I said, we're back to visit Rome because the juicy scandal there was nearing record heights. As always, thank you very, very much for listening. Thank you to our regular patron donors, Sen and Sean. Uh, remember that if you would like to support the podcast, you can buy a copy of The K-Rock Chelsea Hotel on the website, www.ahistoryofitaly.com, or buy the same book directly on Amazon. If you'd like to get in touch, you can drop us an email, hello at ahistoryofitaly.com, and on the website at the same URL, you can find some timelines, pictures, maps to help you navigate the complicated history of Italy. Thanks once again for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.